Revelation 2. How many of you have ever forgotten anything? Sounds like that's like, the, like Nate, that's the dumbest question I've ever been asked. Whoa, all right. Uh, man, <laughs> Mr. Forgetful over here. Um, man, wow, we've all forgotten stuff. In fact, um, I, I thought this was really interesting. Um, as I was kind of looking at this, today we're going to talk about from Revelation 2, overcoming forgetfulness. Overcoming forgetfulness. Now, before we get too far into this, this isn't going to be like tips and tricks to improve your memory. That's not what we're getting into. You can go to Google for that. You can get on YouTube. You can figure out ways to whatever. Um, that's not what we're talking about today. But I thought it was really interesting as I was thinking about memory and forgetfulness. Um, did, you, did you realize... Um, after about an hour, so going through um, any kind of like a, a teaching session, so if go back to like when you're a student in school, even to things like today, or maybe you're part of your group, within, within one hour, you will have forgotten about 50% of the things said. That's just on average. This is, there were studies done, tests given on average. The average person after an hour will forget 50% of the things that they were told in a teaching setting. After a day, they will forget 75%. After a week, 90%. So here's the thing. Um, if you would just retain 100%, I could preach 10% as long as I normally do. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, but what we see is our memory. Memories fail, don't they? Um, our memories, maybe you, <laughs> last night, um, as we were, last night, uh, we were getting ready for bed, and I walked into the bedroom. And I walked one way into the room, looked around, looked around, looked around, looked around, looked around, walked back out of the room. <laughs> my wife was watching me this whole time, and in my mind, I, I had no idea what I was planning to do next. I just, I totally forgot what I was about to do. I mean, uh, there's a good, it was a good 15 seconds. I'm just looking. And she goes, what are you looking for? What are you doing? I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> and we forget things all the time. And here's the thing is it's okay to forget as long as we're forgetting the unimportant stuff. Like you go to the store, you're picking up groceries, you forget bread. Okay, that's fine. You go to school to pick up your kids and you forget one, less fine. You're supposed to pick up your wife. We'll just be, we'll pray for you. Bad thing. Yeah, Jesus, this is the first of the letters specifically written to a church. Last week, we introduced Revelation. We talked about how Revelation reveals to us the urgency of God's mission. And then we looked at how the Revelation um, explains to us and shows us, reveals to us, if you will. Um, it reveals to us God's plan for his church. And then finally, we looked at how Revelation reveals, shows us Jesus. In the first two, in the next two chapters, excuse me, John is recording Jesus' words to seven churches. In each of these churches, he is encouraging them to conquer or to overcome. And so as he is encouraging them, overcome this, conquer this. Today, we're going to take a look at his letter to the church in Ephesus. And as he goes to this church in Ephesus, he says, Ephesians, overcome your forgetfulness. Overcome your forgetfulness. You've forgotten things, and the things you've forgotten are not, they're not unimportant things. They are essential things, and so they must be remembered. As we begin to look at this letter each week, I want to take just a couple minutes and kind of explain the city that we are reading about, because these churches these were in specific cities. They were in real cities. Um, these are real places. These are real people existed at a real time, and so as we see this letter, I think it's helpful for us to know who is this letter being written to. 
In the first few verses, um, we get a glimpse of some of the things they're battling with, some of the things they do well. But as we look at the city of Ephesus, Ephesus is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Third largest city. So this is a massive um, population center. Rome would have been the largest. Um, Down in Egypt, Alexandria would have been the next largest. And then finally, Ephesus. So the largest city in its region. Ephesus was a port town. It was a wealthy city. In fact, um, it was a very educated city, as cities often tend to be. When you went into Ephesus, one of the uh, massive buildings that you would see near the center of town was a library. And this library had an inscription above it. In fact, still stands today, um, pieces of this. But this inscription even still remains today. It says, to Caesar Augustus, who is God? Isn't that incredible? To Caesar Augustus, who is God? Written right there above the library of the city. Across the plaza from the library is um, what's across the plaza from every library. It was the town brothel. (laughs) Yeah. You get a glimpse of what Ephesus looked like. Um, This wasn't a place that was kind of off to the side and kind of hidden. And it was it was at the town square. You have the library, you have the brothel. Your family comes in from out of town and you're like, oh, let's go see Ephesus. There's our library and there's our other activities. This is in the middle of town. Down the street from these things, you would find the Agora. The Agora is the marketplace of the day. Think like an outdoor mall of sorts. All people, different vendors, different um, individuals selling and buying and trading. And this is the center of commerce for a large port city. Ephesus is a port town. And so what um, in this day and age, most of the material goods that were being transported from one place to another happened over the Mediterranean Sea. And so if you were coming to Asia Minor with your goods, if you were going to any of the cities that we're going to look at here in the next few weeks, you would have first come through Ephesus. And so this Agora was a massive center of commerce. It was existed in this large square surrounded by columns. In fact, I was talking with um, one of our members on Wednesday night, and they'd been to Ephesus, and they were talking about some of these things that I'm talking to you about. And so we were having a conversation. I've not been, but I've been studying and looking at. And so this place is a large square surrounded by columns. At every entrance to the Agora was an incense burner. And this incense burner, um, what they would do is they would take and they would pinch some of the incense and throw it into this burner every time that they went in. And what this was, this was an act of loyalty to the emperor and to the empire. You see, everyone that bought and sold and traded within the Roman Empire had to be loyal to Rome. This was a non-negotiable. There were liberties given as far as the worshiping of individual gods, but at the end of the day, the emperor was king and God, and you did nothing without his approval. And so what we see is we see that even in the simple act of buying and selling, idolatry was prominent. In fact, in Ephesus, there were 14 temples to different gods. 14 among the city of Ephesus. The largest of these was dedicated to Artemis. Artemis was, this temple was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In the middle of this um, temple, there are 127 marble pillars. 
Think of the wealth necessary to build this great structure. Artemis was the goddess of fertility and life. And this temple also served as a bank of the day. Employed and working within this temple were hundreds, literally hundreds, of temple prostitutes. This place was as promiscuous as any place in the empire. Orgies and immorality were just part of their worship. It's just what they did. And so as when worshiping Artemis, this is the city, this is the culture that the church of Ephesus is being asked to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a culture that today, uh, when we look at our society, we have plenty of things in our society that we can look at and we can bemoan and we can say, oh, I wish this were different or that. But let's understand that Ephesus, um, the places that you and I think of would have paled in comparison to Ephesus. Ephesus was a wicked city. And in the middle of Ephesus, not only were there 14 temples to other gods and goddesses, one of these temples was the temple to Domitian. Domitian. Um, This is the emperor that we talked about last week, if you were with us. He was a persecutor of Christians. Anyone who refused to worship him, he wanted nothing to do with them. He declared himself to be a god. And Ephesus was, in fact, this city that was known as the Neochorus. This is the city that Domitian selected for his temple to be built in. And so this was like his uh, second capital, if you will. If he wasn't in Rome, he was probably in Ephesus. This was a town that Domitian loved and flocked to. And in fact, his temple, even today, the ruins of it sit on the highest point in the city. So if you were coming into the port of Ephesus, this whole region, if you ever fly into any of the cities that are coastal cities there, um, what you find is that as soon as you get off the coast, many of these cities have like a very steep hill and steep ridges and mountains around the Mediterranean. So there's these uh, overlooks that kind of exist within these towns. Ephesus has a similar thing. And at the top of that, what was standing there? Temple of Domitian. So you're welcome to the city by the skyline of Ephesus, and right there in the pinnacle of it, Domitian. And so in the middle of all of these things, um, at, the, at the base of his temple, there were um, all the other gods of Ephesus in stone, upholding a 50-foot statue of Domitian. <laughs> Think about the nerve of this guy, right? Not only is he a god, but all the other gods are upholding him. This might be why Paul, in his letter to Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, he writes to the Ephesian believers and he says this, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand in the evil day. You think the Ephesians knew anything about the evil day? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They had seen it firsthand. They witnessed it. They watched it happening all around them. Many of them, in fact, had come to Jesus out of these cults. And so an incredible thing is going on within the church of Ephesus. And Jesus says, the first church that I want to write to, record these words, John, is this church in Ephesus. Now, each week as we go into the letters, the letters have a few things that are in common. I think this is really neat. The beginning of each letter Jesus describes himself. He gives some attributes for them to remember about him and who he is. 
Then he gets into some words to the church, um, oftentimes encouragement and oftentimes some uh, rebuke or some corrections that they need to make in their lives. So both of these things exist to most of the churches. There are some exceptions made, but both of these things exist to most of these churches. And so as he's uh, saying, write these things, he goes, here's who I am. Here's what I'm seeing in you. And then he gives a promise to the ones who overcome, to the ones who overcome. And so let's begin by looking at verse number one. He writes, Jesus is speaking, John is recording, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And so immediately out of the gate, he describes himself. And how does he describe himself? He says, I hold the seven stars. I walk in the middle of the seven golden lampstands. What are these seven stars? What are these lampstands? We talked a little bit about it last week. But even as he's speaking of these seven stars, these are, um, he says these are the angels of that church. The word angel meaning messenger. Many believe that he's referring to the teachers of that church, the ones who would come and proclaim the message of the Lord for the people to hear. And so he says, I'm upholding those messengers, or today often we would call those pastors. I'm, uh, I'm upholding them. And then he says, I'm walking among the seven golden lampstands. What are the lampstands representing? Well, he tells us in chapter one, the lampstands are his churches. And so he's saying, I'm walking among the seven golden lampstands. I'm in the middle of these seven churches. You see, as he's describing himself, understand this with me, and this is a theme of this letter to the Ephesians. Jesus is telling them that his presence is with his people. Matthew chapter number one, we talked about this almost two years ago now. Matthew chapter number one, Jesus is introduced by this name, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. And so I want you to hear this as Jesus is speaking. He's saying, listen, I'm the one who holds the seven stars. I'm the one who's walking in the middle of the seven lampstands. God is with his people. You hear me? God is with his people. And I want to be really, really clear. This isn't God was with his people. God is with his people. You see, even today, thank you. (laughs) Even today, God is not separate from. He is not a distance himself from. In fact, James writes and he says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Listen, God is with his people. The fact is, is that the word of God today is doing incredible things around the world. The fact is today that the gospel is being preached in more places than it has ever been. We have more technology with which the gospel is being shared and going out into a world where there are people that are coming to Christ and lives are being changed. God is still with his people. God is still with his people. He hasn't forsaken us. He hasn't forgotten us. And can you imagine these Ephesian believers? So now they're 40, 50 years after the death of Jesus Christ, and they're, they're looking around at this community they're in, and they're saying, Jesus, you said you were going to return. Jesus, you said you were going to come back. Jesus, you said that, that you were going to come and get your people, and yet we're still here, and this wickedness is surrounding us. And so what is Jesus' words to the Ephesians? I'm with you. I'm still there. I'm not gone. I haven't abandoned you. Just because the presence doesn't look like what you want it to look like doesn't mean I'm not there. And so immediately what does he say? He says, 
hey, listen, I'm still with my people. I'm still with my people. And so in the middle of all of these things that the Ephesians are walking through, Jesus says, hey, listen, I am with you. I am with you. And then watch what he says in verse number two. He starts with this, just this beautiful encouragement. I'm with you. And he says this in verse two. I know your works. I know your works. One of the interesting things is that if you go through um, these letters, he says, I know, I know, I know, I know. Sometimes he says your works. Sometimes he says your tribulation. Sometimes he says where you dwell. Um, but he says, listen, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. And so he speaks to this church and he says, listen, I know the blood, the sweat, the tears that you have invested. I know you have gone out and you've done the stuff. I see that church. And he says this, I know your endurance. How many of you understand that um, the Christian life and really life in general requires endurance? It's not a sprint that's over in a day. And in fact, this has been decades now that they've just been at it and at it and at it and at it. Paul, the one who was at the very beginning, the early stage of this church, mentoring and discipling and developing people within this church in the gospel. Paul, in fact, spent three years in Ephesus as a pastor. Paul's dead. He's gone by the time this church is writing. Do you know who their other famous pastor was? John, the one writing this epistle, the one who's penning these things for Jesus. Where's John? In exile on Patmos. Man, they've gone through it. They've seen it happen. There have been difficult days. And Jesus says, hey, church, I see your endurance. I see your endurance. I see the days that are difficult and you kept going. You kept moving forward. You kept reaching people with the gospel. You kept being faithful. And all of these things, church, good job, church. I see your endurance. And then he even says this, you've discerned false prophets. There are those that have come in and they said, we are ourselves apostles. And as they began to teach and to preach their doctrine, they said, wait a second, your doctrine doesn't line up with the things that we've been taught. Your doctrine doesn't line up with the truth. We see that you are false. And they were bold enough to say so. Think about that. They weren't afraid to hurt feelings. They weren't afraid to, I'm sure they did it in a kind way as much as they're able to. But what do they do? When there's falsehood coming up, they said, no, 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 no. That's not it. That's not the stuff. That's not what Paul told us. And he was, he was trained by Jesus. That's not what John told us. And he walked with Jesus. That's not what we're being told. You guys aren't apostles. You're not lining up with the things that we have been taught and heard. And so, in fact, they look around and they say, these are false prophets. These are false apostles that are coming. And verse 3, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. How incredible of a statement is that? You've not grown weary. Any of you, it's, it's easy to get weary, get tired. We do the same stuff, and we say, okay, when, when's the breakthrough going to happen? I've been working so hard, and yet I look around, and the fruit's not the way that I thought it would be. It's easy to give up, isn't it? It's easy to look at the crop coming up and say, man, that's going to be sparse. Maybe I'd be better off just 
abandoning the harvest. Well, what goes out to those who have continued and labored? He says, don't grow weary in doing good, the psalmist writes. Why? Because in due season, you're going to reap if you don't faint. This Ephesian church, man, they've done it. They've continued. They've worked. They've, they've gone about, but, Jesus says, but. Anyone ever receive a compliment and they say like, oh, wow, that shirt looks so great on you, but. Like, wait a second, what? I'm never wearing that shirt again. <laughs> this isn't a compliment. Well, what's happening here? And Jesus says in verse four, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent, do the works you did at first. And so Jesus, as he looks around, he says, listen, you've abandoned your first love. That, that phrase, first love, that word first there, it means this it means primary, your primary love, the thing that stands above everything else. And what's happened to that love? What does he say? He says, you have, verse four, abandoned the love you had at first. So who, who walked away from whom? Who walked away? Did Jesus turn his back on the church? No, Jesus just said, I'm the one standing in the middle of the golden candlesticks. I'm the one that's holding the stars in the right hand. Jesus didn't walk away from his church. He didn't leave his church. His church left him. You hear me? Jesus didn't leave his church. His church left him. His church walked away from the things that they had done at the beginning. And listen, the natural drift of all of us is towards forgetfulness. It's towards apathy. It's towards these dangers. You see, as life went on for the Ephesians, there was a day that they were walking in darkness. They had never heard the gospel of Jesus. Maybe they were Jewish believers now. But for a time, they had gone to the synagogues, and even pilgrimage to the temple, and they had seen all this worship, and a wonderful thing that is. Maybe they were Gentiles, and they would go to the worship of Artemis, and they would eat the meat offered to these idols, and they would take the incense, and they would throw it in the censers, and they would give the glory to the emperor and to these different gods. They would gather together at the great, um, the great dome, the great amphitheater of Ephesus. Maybe some of them, in fact, uh, in the book of Acts, we read that this is the place that they gathered together and drug Paul into the amphitheater, and they started cheering and chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Can you imagine? Maybe some of these people that Jesus is now writing to were the ones who were dragging Paul into this amphitheater. Great is Diana. Great is Artemis, the same goddess here of fertility. Great are they. And he's looking at him. Jesus says, and he says, listen, the passion, the love, the zeal, the desire. When you first understood the gospel, it's changed. It's changed. How many of us can that be said of? Do you remember back to the days when you first came to Christ? When you first put your faith in him and we said, oh man, I want everyone to know this. I remember as a, as a teenager, as I began to take my walk with God seriously, I asked my dad, I said, why doesn't everyone want to believe in Jesus? Man, that zeal. But you know what happens over time? It happens to all of us. We grow a little crusty and old. And we don't move as easily as we used to. And our hearts become a little bit jaded because we've seen things. We've lived life. And we've endured. 
The fact is, is that here, what does he say to return to? He says, hey, listen, repent of the things from the thing you've fallen from. You used to be like this, but now you have changed. Did Jesus change? Was the gospel different? Was Jesus no longer the God that he said he was? No, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. He never changes, but the Ephesians did. And so are we prone to do? Because the fact is, is that as we are called to go and we're called to follow after Jesus, just like um, a glider gets thrown into the air, that glider is eventually going to do what? It's going to come down. Gravity is going to have its pull and it's going to drag it back to the earth. And so often as we go out in our spiritual lives, especially uh, of our own strength, we have that beginning and that initial thrust, but then the cares of life, the details, the weeds, the complexities, the disappointments, they begin to drag us back down. Jesus, that's not his desire for us. In fact, he says, listen, I'm, <laughs> I'm the bread of life. I'm the water of life. I'm the source of fuel and energy and all of these things. I want you to continue in the thing. Remember what you had done and seen in the beginning. See, Jesus didn't leave his church. His church left him. Campfires burn out, right? How many of you have had a campfire, a bonfire, right? You've been there. How many of you, your campfire, your bonfire is still going? Hopefully none of you, all right? And in fact, this happens in so many different ways. What's the solution? He says it right here. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And so listen, repentance is not merely for people who are coming to Jesus Christ. Repentance is also for the Christian. Because as God reveals to us these things that we battle with, the things that we fight against, the things that are going on in our lives, what is the spiritual response to these things? Repentance. Repentance. To turn from, to change your minds. And what is going to happen if it's not corrected? What's going to happen? Jesus, we hear you, but we don't want to do that. What does he say? If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What's the lampstand? That's the church. Yeah, I think we have um, this misunderstanding um, today. I think today sometimes when we look at churches closing their doors, when we look at churches um, that are not reaching in their communities, and we look and we say, oh, man, the devil's closing that church. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. Personally, I don't think that's true. I don't think Satan closes churches, and I'll tell you why. Because Jesus says that he was going to build his church and the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. So I don't think that Satan is the one who closes churches. You know who closes churches? Jesus does. It's his church to begin with. So when churches have to shut their doors, that's a tragic thing. I don't love that. I don't rejoice in that ever. But you know what has oftentimes happened? This is just, this is my limited experience. Um, this is looking at the scripture and having an understanding of what's going on in here. What takes place is that Satan doesn't close the churches, but you know what he does do is he distracts them from their focus. He pulls them away from their primary love. 
from the things that they did at first. He, he drags them into all of these other things, worrying about everything except the gospel of Jesus Christ and except the way that Jesus has radically transformed their lives. Now it's a social club. Now it's this gathering of people who have similar political preferences. Now it becomes anything other than a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. And so Jesus looks around and Jesus says, says church above the door, but I don't know that that place belongs to me. You know why? Because they're not following him. In fact, in the Old Testament, Hosea is told to name one of his sons Loami. You know what Loami means? It means not my people. Not my people. And he's looking at the, the nation of Israel, and God says, name your child this. They're not my people. Well, but Israel is supposed to be God's people. You know why they weren't his people? Because he wasn't their God. Did he leave them? No, they left him. How many times would Jesus go around to places that have church above their names today and say, those aren't my people. Those aren't my people. Those aren't my people. And the fact is, is that that same thing, if we are not careful, can be said of us. We have to be aware. We have to be careful of these things. And so we see that Jesus here, he's speaking to this church and he's saying, come on, look, do this thing, repent and turn back. And you say, but Nate, their doctrine was good. Yeah, their doctrine was good. Isn't that incredible? In fact, watch, watch what he says here. Verse 6, this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So it's not a, this isn't a doctrinal problem that they have here. It's not their theology is broken. It's not that it's messed up, but they had to write out a theological statement, a doctrinal statement. They understand the fundamentals of their faith. They understand these doctrines. That wasn't the problem. And in fact, the Nicolaitans here, these Nicolaitans were gaining ground in the early church. Verse number 14, he says, you, I have, he's speaking to the church in Pergamum, verse 14 of the same chapter. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice immorality. So also, verse 15, have some of you, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so we have this understanding a little bit, it's kind of vague, but we kind of see these Nicolaitans are idolaters. Um, many scholars today believe that these Nicolaitans are ones who they would go into that agora, and they would say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm just going to take some of this incense and psh, because I just don't want to make a stir. These are some that when the time would go for the festivities of Artemis, they would say, well, I know what's true in my heart, and I'm a Christian, and so I, I'm going to go participate, but, but it's, it's okay, I still believe in Jesus. And so they would begin to mix, and what do the Ephesians think about this stuff? No! No, you can't do that. They understand it, but something has changed inside of them. And they've left the love that they did at first. They continue to do the work, but they've been distracted from where their hearts belong. And we have to be aware of the things that distract us. In our culture today, you know, one of the things that I see distracts us is just activity. Activity. We like to be busy. We like to have things to do. But could you imagine, uh, rewind for some of you guys back to going on a first date. Can you imagine? Some of you guys never had to go on a first date in the era of cell phones. So just picture with me going on a first date in the area of cell phones. And then I don't even have my phone with me. I forgot my phone. Um, what we see is, can you imagine sitting across the table from this person? And you're like, oh, wow, they seem really interesting. I'm really into them. There's some chemistry. Uh, but then every time their phone rings, they say, oh, I need to take this. Hold on. 
And the first time you're like, well, maybe it's urgent and you try to be patient. And then five minutes later, oh, oh, give me, give me just a minute. <laughs> Y'all were thinking it. <laughs> and then, oh, hold on, I got this text. Oh, I need to check my email. I need to, well, wait a second. You're doing all the things except like talking to me. Uh, you're busy, but, but you're not engaging. Is there going to be a second date? Please say no. Don't be desperate. <laughs> Have better standards. <laughs> okay? No, you wouldn't settle for that, and you shouldn't. But the fact is, we just allow stuff to distract us from what God has called us to do. But when a church ceases to follow Jesus, you know what he does? He closes the doors. He closes the doors. So, Nate, how can that be avoided? There's a word right there in that text. It says it a couple times. Repentance. That means we were going that way, but, oh, wow, this is not the way to go. I'm going to change my mind and go the other direction. And so what we see is that Jesus calls for his church to repent. And watch this at the end. I think this is so beautiful. Verse number seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, this is that same word, overcomes. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What's this promise? What's the promise to this Ephesian church? He says, you're going to eat of the tree of life. In the paradise of God. The emperors of this day and age, so much of this is just reflected in early culture, um, the emperors of, these, of this day would have, a, they would have their own gardens. The Greek word is paradisio, the same Greek word used here. And the emperors would have this place, this is a magnificent garden, where they would host the important uh, dignitaries and delegates and cabinet members, and all the important people would get to gather in the paradisio. They would go to the paradisio, and that's where they would spend their time and where they would gather with the emperor. These were those who were significant enough in his eyes to be invited and to merit uh, viewing this garden of the emperor. And so here, as Jesus is speaking, he says, listen to the one who overcomes here. You have an invitation. And it's not to the garden of some emperor. You have an invitation to the paradise, the garden of the Lord. You're invited. Understand this. You're a VIP in his eyes. What does he say in John chapter number one? As many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. Who's more important than the children? And so what does he say? He says, hey, to those of you who overcome, you stick with these things, you conquer, you fight against this forgetfulness. There's going to be a day where you're going to be gathered in the paradise of your God. There's going to be a time where you're going to gather together. And in the middle of that, what does he promise? He says this, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Interesting statement here. Interesting statement here. Tree of life, if you look at that phrase, um, I only know of three books in the Bible that that phrase tree of life is mentioned at all. Um, it comes up a couple times in Proverbs. It's mentioning as a, a tree of life is a statement. There's only two books even then that go and say the tree of life. You find it in Revelation find it here and then later in the book. And you find it in the book of Genesis. Back in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, they're placed in this, ready for it, garden. 
where they are told that they can care for, they can eat of all of the trees of the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you're here today, you probably know this story. What do they do? They go and they find the one tree they shouldn't take of. They grab that fruit. They say, that's the one I want because they're like us. Uh, I want that one. They eat of it. And from that moment, sin is now in this world. If you fast forward just a little bit, really interesting thing takes place. We're told in chapter 2 that the tree of life is in the garden there. That's the tree of life is existing in that garden. Chapter number 3, God says, it's time to get man out of that garden. Why? Lest he eat of that tree of life and live forever. What is this tree of life representing? What is this tree of life uh, standing for? What is the function of this tree of life? This is talking about eternal life. So as we go and we're entering into the paradise of God, you know what else we're given in that paradise of God? The tree of life. Eternal life. You see, it's not just an invitation to enter this garden and now a party's over, time to go home and go back to. No. This is a place where you can dwell and be and live forever. So what's the promise here that he is making? This He's saying this. In the middle of all of this, eating of this tree of life, this is a return to who God designed us to be. This is rewinding the clock to a time of no sin, no shame, no fear, no loss, no pain. All the bad things, they're untrue now, and you're invited. And so the hardships of your life, as you look around and say, there are hard days. I've got some scars from the things that I've endured both physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, whatever that might be. He's saying there's a day where you can come, you're invited to eat of this tree of life, and in that moment, that stuff is gone. That stuff is no more. And how long is it no more? Forever. That's why I think Paul can write and talk about the light affliction that we endure in this life. Do the burdens you carry seem light? Anyone here, you say, oh yeah, my burdens are light. Maybe in contrast to someone else, I guess, we could have that perspective. But man, they don't feel light to us, do they? They feel heavy to us. Some days we just don't even want to get out of bed. We just feel like crippled by them. But the fact is, what does he promise? He says, there's going to be a day that's not true anymore. That's not how it's going to be. That's not what it's going to look like. And who eats of this tree in Revelation 2? The one who conquers. The one who overcomes what? Their forgetfulness. This is the one who remembers. See, the fact is, is that we don't get to God just by doing all the right things. Do you know you can do all the right things and miss Jesus? You can walk all the steps. You can come to church. You can even invite other people to church. You can read the Bible. You can pray. You can do all this stuff and miss Jesus. What a shame that is. How unfortunate that is. And yeah, that's what the Ephesian believers are at risk of doing. Hey, you're taking all the steps. Good job. But I'm going to take that lampstand away. Because you might be a lot of things, but you're not a church. And then what does Jesus say at the end here? Watch this. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I want you to follow, the, follow me with this. This is where I think Paul's letter to, I'm sorry, John's letter to Ephesus through the words of Jesus, this is where he's going. Your work for Jesus must be a result of your walk with Jesus. 
Let's say it again. Your work for Jesus must be a result of your walk with Jesus. Listen, you come and you want to do all the stuff, I'm so glad. Listen, there's work to be done. There's work to be done, right? Absolutely. But if you're not walking with Jesus and you're just trying to work for him, man, that's like pouring out of an empty cup. You know what, you know what good you're doing? You see, we go to Jesus. He fills us up. He's the spring of life, the water of life. He says, if you drink of this, you'll never thirst. So you want to go pour into someone else's cup? Go to the water of life first, and then take that and give it to someone else. That's his plan and his desire for us. Not that you and I have to go out and live these perfect lives where, oh, oh, look at that person. They just, they're a model Christian. Well, here's this. Uh, The Ephesian churches, the Ephesian church here, you know what they looked like? The model church. Man, those guys, they fought the Nicolaitans. Wow, look at those guys. They resisted the idolatry of the day. And when Jesus comes to him, he says, hey, good job, I guess. Um, it'd be nice if you'd bring me along with you. This church was doing all the things. She weren't doing it with Jesus. But how easy is it for us to get caught up in the day? You get caught up in the week. You get caught up in the motions. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to go. I'm going to. And listen, oftentimes, oftentimes, they're good things, right? They're good things. But then we allow these good things to replace godly things. Well, where does that leave us? That leaves us as a good person, but not a godly one. And so the fact is, is that you go and you pursue Jesus. You walk with him, you open up his word, and you cherish him. You remember the love that you had when you first heard the gospel. And you said, whoa, Jesus would give his life for me? Are you kidding? I'm not worthy of that. Wow. But now it's just become, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus, death, burial, resurrection, gospel, good news, yeah, rah, rah. What happened? What happened? Did Jesus change? No. We just got tired of it. We just, it became the norm. It became the the easy thing to do. Listen, it's time to repent. It's time to say, this is my first love. Jesus, you're all that I need. All the work, all the other things, that's that's secondary. That's, That's later. That's, listen. Do not walk out of your thinking. My work for Jesus and my walk for Jesus, same thing. No. Your work for Jesus must be a result of your walk with Jesus. It must be a result of your walk with Jesus. You hear me, church? Man, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't pull punches, does he? He just comes right at us. He tells us the things we need to hear church. So easy for us to walk away from him. So easy for us to do the things and say, oh, I can take care of this myself. Don't worry about it, Jesus. I got this. Before we realize it, he's a million miles away. And he's not moved. But we have. So today, church, I'm not worried about your working for Jesus. I'm concerned with your walk with him. What does that look like? Maybe you're sitting in this room today and you say, Nate, you know what? I've been doing the spiritual things my whole life. But I've never even placed my faith in Jesus. He's not my Savior. In a moment, hey, we're going to give you an invitation to change that, to put your faith in Him. 
I know many of you in this room and you have that testimony of faith in Jesus. Hey, listen, you're doing the work for, great, good. And can I tell you this? If you're walking with Jesus, you will do work for him. Jesus gets your heart. He's going to get your hands too, okay? Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Let's say um, we've got young kids. Let's say my wife says, oh, I need to get some of these errands done. I'm going to run out. Can you put the kids in bed? Yeah, absolutely, honey. I'll put the kids in bed. So I put the kids in bed. And then I say, you know what? There's some dishes in the on the counter and the, the kitchen's a little bit messy from dinner. I'm going to clean that up. And so I go into the kitchen and I begin to wash those dishes and I get everything loaded and the kitchen's just spotless. She comes home and she says, wow, this kitchen is immaculate. Thank you so much. And I would look at her and I could say something like, honey, I just want you to know how much I am dedicated to the institution of marriage. What is she going to say? How romantic. I'm so glad I chose to spend the rest of my life with you. No, what's the right answer? I did it because I love you. I did it because I love you. So you're doing it because you're dedicated to the institution of the church. You're doing it because you love Jesus. There's a difference.